This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Merry Prospect Christmas Day feels like today. Noah Syndergaard making his Major League debut tonight. Carlos Correa's in AAA. What a day. What a day today, Jake Siner. Yeah, yeah, Tyler Mon. It's uh it's been fun getting ready for uh for Korea I'm trying to think of a holiday. Korea Christmas, I guess. Korea Festivus. Yeah, for the folks. You see, you see Fresno tweeted today that their uh their flight to Albuquerque got canceled. So I think Korea is all alone in Albuquerque <laughs> right now because he was coming from Texas. Well that's fun. So they had to, they had to bus. We'll talk a little more, I guess, about the adventures of minor league travel later. But yeah, their their flight out of Fresno got canceled. So they had to bus to Oakland to get a different flight. Oh man, it's Albuquerque. Southwest Airlines is the uh, they are the mode of transportation for the PCL. And every once in a while, PCL road trips seem like they take a whole. They're like something that would make Odysseus proud sometimes. But uh, poor Carlos Correa is just like hanging out alone in Albuquerque. I was a Breaking Bad fan. <laughs> you can hop on one of those He's tours. Seen all the spots. He's, he's pizzas around. Was this was this the car wash? Is this the car wash? <laughs> so welcome in. It's episode number seven of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show, the Minor League Baseball Podcast. I am Tyler Mon. He is Jake Siner. Uh, check us out on iTunes and uh, on the website. You can rate. Review, subscribe on iTunes, get it on your mobile device, get it wherever you would like to listen most to the show before the show. You can let us know how you think we're doing. We love uh, subscriptions and reviews. You can also get in touch with the podcast at podcast at MILB.com. Send us your prospect questions. Send us your questions about just the world of minor league baseball if you want, uh, about you know random eBay finds for, for Benjamin Hill. If you happen to come across something that you think you'd like, uh, send it our way. Why not? Or anybody else in the office for that matter. It seems like a fun thing that I apparently do on uh, from from like a week to week basis, but uh, but welcome in. It's like we said, a very big day for prospects. Noah Syndergaard of the New York Mets will be making his major league debut tonight. We're recording this on Tuesday, and of course, Carlos Correa, the number three overall prospect in all of baseball, is debuting at the AAA level tonight, and. We're going to dive into our edition of Three Strikes for episode number seven with that topic right there. Carlos Correa gets the call. He's headed to AAA Fresno. They are on the road at Albuquerque to take on the Isotopes, but Correa just destroyed the Texas League in his stay so far this season. And, Jake, this promotion I don't think is unexpected by any means, but it also seems like it could be a very short stay there before Carlos Correa maybe makes that last jump. Yeah, the uh, something that has been written about and talked about, but obviously not confirmed by the Astros, is uh, a promotion for Correa sometime at the end of May or early June to, to the major leagues would get him past probably where the, the Super 2 deadline has traditionally been. And the, the Super 2 deadline, for those who don't know, is um, sort of a clause in the, the CBA where essentially it'll save the Astros a few million dollars. It won't buy them any extra years of control, but it, it pushes Correa's first arbitration hearing uh, potentially back a year. Um, so that's probably something that is weighing in on this decision, but I, I think getting Cray out of the Texas League was kind of a no-brainer. Uh, he was leading the Texas League in batting average, RBIs, stolen bases, slugging percentage, total bases, doubles, and hits, and he was tied for the lead in home runs. It's pretty um, good. 
there was wasn't much Pretty left good. To, to prove <laughs> in the Texas League. Uh, last week he was the Texas League's Offensive Player of the Week, batted four twenty one four twenty nine with two homers, ten runs batted in, and five stolen bases in his last week with Corpus Christi. And what I thought was really illuminating about this was Jeff Lunau, the general manager of the Houston Astros, told the Houston Chronicle. Basically, that this was something that is just kind of laying the groundwork for him to make that final move to Houston. You don't often hear GMs come out and say, like, man, we, yeah, we've really thought about him at the big league level already. But he said to the Chronicle, quote, I have to say it's tempting about a possible major league promotion. Quote, it's something we'll continue to think about. Right now, his next challenge is to face AAA pitching. So if Carlos Correa goes and rakes, as he did in the Texas League, in the Pacific Coast League, and continues to play very, very good defense at shortstop, I would imagine that probably by the, the official start of the season of summer, we'll see Carlos Correa as the everyday shortstop uh, for the Houston Astros. Yeah, and i got to say, the one thing, I know I reeled off all those stats where he's leading the league. The one that really stands, so the, the big story with Correa in spring training was he was one of those guys who came in supposedly in the best shape of his life. And he had put on a bunch of weight, put on a bunch of muscle. You can see it on, in photos and things of him. And you'd think maybe that would slow him down, maybe cut it down his, his range at shortstop or hurt him on the bases. He's 15 for 15 in stolen base attempts this year. His career high is 20, which he did last year. He only played 62 games before he had the, the leg injury. But he seems to be getting better at running the bases as he's getting older and getting bigger, which is just a freakish thing for a guy who's already a freak athlete to be doing. He is he right now. You can't point to a hole in his game. You can look at a lot of other prospects and say that there's a lot of stuff they need to work on, or there's this certain area they need to work on. Correa is not one of those guys. Yeah, that's we're going to be talking to, to Dan Radisson, the hitting coach of Corpus Christi, on, uh, on later in the show. I'm interested to ask him just what he possibly has to tell Correa as far as getting better at this point because. Just, from the stat box score, especially, it doesn't seem like there's much there. Exactly. Like, what do you coach a guy on? Like, okay, <laughs> go out and continue being Carlos Correa. Yep. All right. Yep. Strike two. Another uh, maybe similar slash former top prospect, Jake Fireaway. Yeah, with uh, with strike two, an, an interesting guy uh, in the Kansas City Royals system who I think a lot of people had maybe given up on or forgotten about in Bubba Starling. Um, and Starling is all of a sudden, it's a small sample, but maybe sort of doing some things that are making him, uh, you know, very, very interesting. Uh, he returned to Class A Advanced Wilmington to start the year, and in 12 games, he had 386, two home runs, stole a couple bases, just utterly dominated the Carolina League after really struggling there last year. And, uh, and Kent City gave him a pretty, pretty quick bump to Northwest Arkansas. Where he started off a little slow, but really broke out last week. He homered in three straight games. Uh, we had a good story on the site today where, um, sort of half jokingly, Starling attributed it to a bunch of his teammates dared him to eat a beetle, and they, <laughs> they offered to pay him some money to eat the beetle, and he ate the beetle. And then the next three games, he hit home runs. So they're they're attributing that to the beetle. Um, if you're being a little more serious, it sounds like one of the things that really helped Starling. And I talked to him about this last week was apparently he spent the offseason working three or four days a week with George Brett, who's the Hall of Fame, former third baseman for the Royals. He's a VP with the team now. He was the team's hitting coach for a little bit. Um, and the thing that he and Brett really seemed to work on was, one, getting Starling's timing a little better, but to set that up was, two, they wanted to get him in a better position to hit the ball, to, to go from making that decision of this is a pitch I want to swing at to actually starting the swing. It sounds like that transition had been sort of hanging Starling up in the past where he, he decides to swing, but his body isn't in the right place. His mindset maybe isn't in the right place, and he's getting a little herky-jerky just trying to start that swing. So they did two things. One is just a, a kind of approaching the mental side of that, getting him to where he's more focused on what pitch he wants to hit, the timing of when he wants to kind of start moving his body. 
but then they also moved his hands back. The quote from uh, Starling, the money quote from this was, we were, quote, we worked with my hands a little bit, moved my hands back further in a more comfortable position for myself, and we worked on rhythm and timing a lot, just being able to be ready and attack the ball, be aggressive. Being able to pick George's brain, obviously it's pretty cool for him to take the time to come into the stadium and work out with me. Um, so Starling, I mean, he doesn't need to hit a whole lot to be a pretty valuable major league contributor. He's one of the best defensive center fielders in the minor leagues. There's not really much, uh, not a lot of disagreement about that. He's really, really fast still, really, really rangy. He's exactly the athlete that Kansas City thought they were getting when they, they drafted him in the first round a few years ago. Um, it's just been that hit tool that's holding him back, and he seems to think that a lot of that was about not being in a uh, both a mindset and just a physical position to be ready to hit when the pitch is being thrown. And it seems like he has done what he can to address that. And the numbers certainly early on are playing that out, uh, both the power and batting average, but he's cut down on the strikeouts. He's drawn more walks. He's kind of all the indicators you look for. He's checking a lot of those boxes. I personally am much more in love with the idea that he's lived out the basic premise of a superhero movie by eating a beetle and gaining <laughs> powers from it. Like, I think that's a far cooler story. What are they, they named <laughs> Joe Boo first. <laughs> But the thing about Bubba, I mean, I think you kind of noted it early on talking about him. A lot of people have already sort of forgotten about Bubba Starling or given up somewhat on Bubba Starling. He's only 22. I mean, he's not going to be 23 until August. So he's not necessarily super young for double A, but he's right kind of in the meat of that curve uh, for prospects with a lot of talent at that level. What we saw from him in his rookie professional season in 2012 with rookie level Burlington was basically what I think everybody thought they'd be getting out of Bubba Starling. He batted 275 that year, 856 OPS, hit 10 home runs in 53 games, was very, very good. Really, the offense kind of fell apart, especially in 2014 and his 132-game stint with Class A Advance Wilmington, a 642 OPS. He only hit nine home runs, and Wilmington is a graveyard for hitters. It's a very, very pitcher-friendly park, but we just didn't see a lot out of Bubba Starling, and I think a lot of people thought, I don't know if this kid's ever going to get it figured out. That was on the heels of a kind of an uninspiring 2013 in Class A with Lexington, but He's an athlete. I mean, this is a kid who I think I've noted selfishly on this podcast before. He committed to my alma mater, the University of Nebraska, to play quarterback. We were all quite excited about that. And then he took $7.5 million from the Royals to go play baseball. I don't think anybody would fault anybody for doing that. So you kind of root for a kid like that who's had options, chose to pursue the route of professional baseball. It's a very difficult thing to do. And then really ran into some roadblocks. It's very exciting to see him finally starting to reclaim some of that prospect status and especially doing it in such a way where he is forcing the issue himself. He made the commitment to do that work every day or four or five days out of the week over the offseason to continue to see George Brett, to continue to work on his stuff and try to get better. A lot of guys who we've seen get that big prospect money, they start to struggle, and they never really pull it back together. So this is really exciting for Royals fans. Yeah, no, the, the makeup is definitely a plus there. I don't think anybody, they certainly haven't seen it suggested, that, that his struggles have been tied to a lack of work ethic or, or a lack of effort, I think. If anything, there's been some reports, and, and he, I think he might admit there's been you know pressing at times, or um, you know the, he's struggled because baseball is really hard, and that's sort of you know that's a thing that all guys kind of learn at some point, and he's figuring out the best way for him to be the best kind of player he can be. Um, and now he's, I mean, that Northwest Arkansas team, they're going to get Raul Mondesi back at some point. He was injured; he played in one game on opening day. Um, another guy who's had sort of a similar trajectory to Starling, really young, got pushed pretty aggressively, has never really put it all together offensively, but the raw tools are just outstanding with him and Jorge Bonifacio and Hunter Dozier. That's that's a heck of a lineup there in uh in, in northwest Arkansas. That's a fun team and Bobino Fuenmayor, who's less of a prospect but mashing this year and has an eighty grain name. 
That is an 80-grade name. There. Uh, also, last night I tweeted out the first names, the starting, uh, the top <laughs> six of the lineup of the South Bend Cubs last night, and there were some amazing first names in that lineup. There are a whole lot of Miners Moniker Madness contenders. Well, the South Bend there's Glaber, there's Joskar. i got to go find all of them now because it made yeah, me. I'm trying, I'm trying to think how many I can remember. There was that. one guy named Jason. And yeah. that really struck me as being uh, just very fitting with the whole thing. Uh, in total, they were Charser, Glaber, Chesney, Yasiel, Jason, and Geoscar. Yeah. Top four six teams. in the South Bend Cups lineup last night. I love that team. Four, four PA announcer, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially for road games. I don't know how to do it. Visiting <laughs> ballparks. All right, strike three, Jake. Let's talk about another uh, former top prospect, now the number three prospect in the Philadelphia Phillies organization. Another guy who it feels like we've been waiting a long time to see break through at the major league level. Saw some time last year, but uh, Michael Franco is on the verge once more of being called to Philly and is once more doing very big things in AAA with Lehigh Valley so far this season. 341 average, four home runs, 19 runs batted in. He's had a hit, at least one hit, in 25 of his 30 games. Leads the International League with 12 doubles, 44 hits, ranked second in the league. And it looks like, according to general manager Ruben Amaro, he is very, very close to getting that call. Uh, Last year, we saw him really blow up right before his promotion. This year, it seems like this might finally be his time to step into the spotlight. Yeah, it was the first half of last season was not real good for, for Michael Franco in AAA, and about the halfway point, he made some sort of adjustment. I've seen some coaches and things quoted saying it was it was a matter of plate discipline and um, just you know sort of making the general adjustment the guys are going to make, especially young guys, a 21-year-old in AAA for the first time, just anticipating what pitches he might get from guys in situations and knowing what pitches to lay off and when to be more aggressive, when to be less aggressive. So for the last, what, his last four months or five months in AAA total, he's just been utterly dominant, hasn't really left a whole lot, certainly at the plate that he can improve on. Um, Some questions still defensively, how good a third baseman he's going to be. I think uh, a lot of this was tied Monday. It was announced that Cody Ashey was going to be demoted uh, from Philadelphia down to AAA for, I mean, he has to be there for at least 10 games, but largely to work on transitioning from being a third baseman to being an outfielder. I think that certainly clears a path for Franco to, to get up there at some point and some point soon. Uh, the quote from Amaro was, quote, he's getting closer and closer. We just want to make sure he's ready to be a big leaguer for a long time when you bring him to the big leagues, um, which I think that's, uh, you know, that makes sense that they don't want to put him in a position where he's going to shuttle back and forth, especially, you know, the, the Phillies aren't going anywhere this year as a team. There's no reason to um, put a guy on, on the shuttle going back and forth and, and confuse his development at all if, if you're really just planning for the future. So I think the Phillies are doing this the right way. They're setting it up to do it the right way. Um, but, yeah, Franco offensively has nothing left to prove at AAA. If defensively they're still working on some things, I think that makes sense. Um, but really I think it comes down to whether or not the athleticism is going to be enough for him to play third base long term, and I'm, I'm a little skeptical on that. Um, but has the power certainly to, to play first base, and he's he's been hitting at a high average for his last you know four or five months of, of games at AAA too. He also did see some action over at first base, made four starts there so far this season for Lehigh Valley. Uh, and while Amaro did note that he'll probably spend most of his time at third base, he said, quote, the beauty of him is he can play the other position, so if we need him to do that too, he could do that. But we don't want to bring him until we're sure it's time for him to come. So at this point, the Phillies know what they have in him, and I think it's been more of a seasoning thing to get him started, get his feet wet in the International League, get him on a good roll, and then get him called up to the Major League's 
But Phillies fans obviously have been waiting for a few years now for some really positive news. And, and with Franco on the way, that's one of the, the generation of guys who will be counted on to kind of bring that franchise back from these last couple of seasons where things have been a little bit rough in Philly. Yeah, and another guy who that Super 2 deadline we talked about with Correa might be something that's at play here, too. Uh, certainly, when you're the Phillies and you're not competing, the uh, the read, there's no reason to spend, you know, whatever it would cost, an extra 7 or $8 million. Uh, no reason to spend that if you don't have to or, or set yourself up to have to spend that in the future. So a lot of guys on the move uh, this week, and a lot of guys will be on the move shortly as uh, we've seen so many top prospects. We've talked about this like week to week, but we've already seen so much movement among really, really top, really key guys, and that's continuing already throughout these uh, these first 10, 15 days of May so far. So that wraps up three strikes for episode number seven of Minor League Baseball's The Show Before the Show podcast. And uh, we're going to talk a little Carlos Correa next as we have discussed the way that Carlos Correa has already dominated the Texas League. Now he's going to go up, try to do the same thing in the Pacific Coast League with the Fresno Grizzlies, the AAA affiliate of the Houston Astros, and Dan Radisson, the hitting coach of the Corpus Christi Hooks, a guy who's very familiar with Carlos Correa and a lot of other top prospects on that Hooks team. He joins us next. Our guest this week is the hitting coach at Double A Corpus Christi. Dan Radisson joins us now. Dan, appreciate you uh, coming to join us. How's everything going down there? Hey, pretty good. We just got off the got off the bus about four thirty in the morning, so it's Double A life, man. We're we're, we're, enjo- we're enjoying it. Oof, that's rough. <laughs> yeah, uh, one guy who uh, who wasn't on that bus ride with you was Carlos Correa, who uh, just last night we're talking on Wednesday morning. Last night played in his first Triple A game. Uh, he's with you guys in Corpus Christi for 29 games, hit 385, seven home runs. He was leading the Texas League in pretty much every uh, statistical category imaginable. Uh, I wanted to start by just asking Dan, what was uh, what was Carlos doing so well in the Texas League? I think we know a little bit about his talent and, and some of his makeup. We've talked about that on the podcast before, but I'm curious just for your take on what it was that allowed him to be uh, so dominant in the Texas League, especially coming off a year that was shortened by injury and, and not having played in double A before. Well, the most amazing thing to me was that they pitched him so careful. Uh, they oftentimes almost, uh, almost primarily pitched him backwards. Um, you didn't see a lot of fastball strikes in the strike zone. They would show him the fastball. They'd try to, try to get him, they'd nibble with him in the fastball. Um, and, uh, he, he did a great job of pitch selection. He did a great, great job of using the field and he really handled the fact that he, he got pitched like he was the man here. That's for sure. Yeah. What, what, um, one thing that I think Astros fans are kind of talking about is they're curious about when he's, he's going to get to the majors and, and obviously they want to see him there. Uh, I'm curious just how you think, just based on the way he handled double-A pitching, not so much when he's going to get to the majors, I know that's not necessarily a thing you deal with, but how he's going to handle doing that. I think we see a lot of guys who, in recent years, we expected to go to the majors and hit really well, and they've struggled for certain reasons. I'm curious how, I mean, you're a guy who's, who's coached in the major leagues, how you think major league pitchers are going to try to attack him, if it's going to be different than what he saw in double-A, and how you think he's going to respond to that when that time comes. Well, the thing that I've noticed on young players when they first come to the big leagues, and I've cautioned Carlos about this, and it'll even be a, uh, it's, it's good that he's taking this step to AAA because it's going to be another time when he's going to say, okay, what do I have to do here? But many times young hitters 
think that they have to do more. They have to swing harder, swing bigger, um, do a lot of things that they didn't do to get there. And if he can just stay with his approach and, and do what Carlos Correa does, you know, obviously pitching so much better. It's, it's the best baseball in the world. Um, and he's not going to put up those kind of numbers, obviously, but he's still going to hit, he's still going to go there and hit for power because he's, he's got a, he's got such a powerful swing. He's still going to drive the ball. Um, you know, but, but he's not going to see that, uh, he's not used to seeing that, uh, 95, 96 coming out of the bullpen, uh, from the seventh inning on. Yeah. You mentioned that, um, you know, some of the adjustments between double A AA and triple A in the major leagues, and that's, I guess, similar to the things we hear from coaches and players a lot about the jump from the, the class A level or class A advance to double A. Um, just having seen him now handle that so well, what is was that just an awareness of uh, knowing that he can't try to, to do too much in response to, to promotion? Is that, do you think, why he handled things so well in double A, or is he maybe just talented enough where, where guys working backwards and things just wasn't going to phase him with the, the stuff that double-A pitchers have? Well, it's just a faster game in the big leagues. So <laughs> the speed of the game in the big leagues is what uh, separates the men from the boys. And, and um, you know, time will tell. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you project everything he's done, there's all the projections would say he's going to be fine. But uh, it's it's a fast game in the big leagues. They're the best players in the world, so you know it's going to be it's a tough task for anybody. Yeah, and you you alluded to his power a little bit before. He had seven home runs in, in twenty nine games. His career high coming into the year was nine home runs. I think he probably would have ended up with with more last year. He's on a better pace. Um, but the power is something that hasn't necessarily translated in games for him at a a really great pace at this point in his career. Um, but he did appear to show up in spring training with a little more muscle and everything. I'm curious just from seeing him taking batting practice and, and seeing him on a day-to-day basis, how much raw power you think he has and, and what kind of uh, how you think that's going to translate in the major leagues when he gets there? Yeah, he's going to be he's going to be uh, <clears throat> he's going to put up good uh, slug percentage because um, he has matured. His body is strong. He's learned how to finish his swing. Um, he's He's learned how to get the ball uh, a mill in the uh, inside part of the plate in the air. Um, he's really learned how to repeat the swing over and over, amazingly so for a young hitter. So, um, you know, it's just going to be an adjustment to the speed of the game that that you can't you can't uh, reproduce down here. Of course, we, the double A faces a lot of great arms, but they don't they don't. Uh, they don't have that um, combination where the, every pitch they throw, they know they know pretty well where it's going to go. And, and one thing that's you know, always really impressed all of us on our staff is talking to, to people who have coached Carlos at the lower levels in the way that despite being uh, one of the youngest players on pretty much every team he's played on, he's managed to step into a leadership role pretty seamlessly and stood out for the way that he kind of influences teammates and, and helps keep guys on track and um, the way his, his makeup kind of pours over to the rest of the team. I'm curious at Double I know he's with a lot of the same guys that he's come up with, but also there are some older guys that he's running into, maybe having teammates for the first time. Just how his personality kind of translated at Corpus Christi, if he uh, kind of stepped right back into that leadership role there, and, and just kind of what you saw in the way that he day-to-day is interacting with teammates and coaches and things, how uh, that helps him and helps the team. Yeah, he's been consistent that way. From, from the day 
from the day he arrived, he's been very businesslike, uh, extremely mature, um, had the ability to um, influence the rest of his teammates um, in all positive ways. It, I mean, he's, he's absolutely amazing uh, in that respect. That he's so wise behind his years, and um, his work ethic is such a good influence on the other other players. So, you know, exactly what you're saying. He 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 took that role, and probably even more so in Double A because his performance was so off the charts. Now, all right, and changing gears, I want to talk to you about a, a couple of other guys who are still there in Corpus Christi. The first one I want to ask about is Tony Kemp who was a 2013 fifth rounder, a second baseman, an outfielder out of Vanderbilt. He's listed at five foot six and 165 pounds. And from things I've heard from people who have seen him in person, that might be a little bit generous, but he's done nothing but hit coming up really through the entire system. Uh, he's hitting 330 this year. His on-base percentage is up over 440. What is it about his, his game and his approach at the plate that kind of allows him to overcome what should be a disadvantage from that size and really put up such... Uh, impressive numbers really coming through the the system. Do you think? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to spend a couple of years with Tony Gwynn in San Diego, and Tony Kemp has the same type of uh, approach that uh, that Gwynn used to use. Um, he can inside out and carve the ball down the left field line and keep it fair, almost any any uh, part of the strike zone. Um, it's, which, you know, allows him to also make pretty good, pretty good, uh, um, passes at off speed stuff. So he's going to be a, a real good lead off on base guy because he is, a, has the shortness of the swing is inside and above the ball. Is that, I mean, do you think that's almost where he's using his size to his advantage, having the, the shorter arms and things to just make sure he never gets beat inside? Is that, I guess, an accurate way to summarize his approach? Yeah, it's not so that uh, he, he just lets the ball get so deep that he makes good swing decisions and he sees the ball for a long time and he can move that ball around. I mean, um, uh, he can pull the ball when he wants to, but he re- rarely looks to do that. And another guy that I wanted to ask about who seems like he's starting to come into his own a little bit in double-A is Teoscar Hernandez. He had two home runs on Sunday, another one on Tuesday. I think he's got hits in six straight games now. Um, got off to, statistically, a, a pretty rough start, and he got a little bit of double-A time last year, but a little bit of a rougher start this year. I uh, wanted to ask just what you've seen from him, uh, what do you think kind of led him to stumble out of the gate, and, and what he's done the last couple games to kind of get himself on track and certainly tap into what we know is some pretty good raw power. Yeah, he showed up in spring training with this um, tap step that uh, really did not allow his body to get the separation that it needs to um, uh, really stay on the ball and stay in, stay into the middle of the field and make the adjustments on the off-speed pitches. Um, he has sunk, since then, um, to his credit, uh, totally revamped the way he's organizing his body. Now he's getting good separation. He's working back in the middle of the field. And now you're going to see, but he's got plus bat speed. So uh, now you're going to see once he starts staying on the ball and staying in the middle of the field, he's, he's going he's to start uh, having a great season. 
you know, what he was trying to accomplish with the, the toe tap. I know that's something guys sometimes do to adjust timing or maybe try to get a little more momentum and, and power. I can't imagine he needs to, to tap into more power, but curious just what you thought his thought process was there and how tough it was to kind of talk him out of that. Yeah, well, sometimes, you know, um, players make uh, make adjustments that uh, feel good to them, but um, sometimes they don't really understand why it's not the best uh, best adjustment to make. And at, at some point, once the failure takes over, now they're saying, okay, I'm ready to get back to uh, what it is I need to do to play in the big leagues. And he's showing now, he's showing um, – He's uh, he drove a ball to right field last night that went to a warning track and then then he hit the home run to left. So he's starting to use the field again, starting to drive the ball again, and uh, making better pitch decisions. Excellent, Dan Radison is the uh, the hitting coach at Double A Corpus Christi in the Houston Astros organization. Dan, appreciate you uh, coming to join us. We'll let you go and hopefully uh, get a nap before you guys get into uh, game action today. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Our thanks again to Dan Radisson, the hitting coach at Double A Corpus Christi, for joining us. Some good stuff from Dan. Uh, we're going to change gears and talk about a story that broke today on Tuesday, uh, shortly before we, we recorded this podcast. Um, the uh, the bus of the Carolina Mudcats crashed and, and flipped off a highway in North Carolina. Um, luckily, nobody was hurt seriously. There were eight people sent to the hospital and, and treated for, for minor injuries. Um, but after you know, a few hours of, of being delayed, the Team's able to get back on the road. Their game on Tuesday was postponed, but it sounds like it's not going to throw their schedule too much out of whack, and um, thankfully just no serious injuries or anything. But uh, we did think that might be a good segue to talk about. Uh, I know, Tyler, you had sent out a series of tweets just as a former play-by-play guy who worked with uh, a couple different teams um, just about the experience of being on these late-night bus rides, these long bus rides, and um, some of these things. I wanted to ask kind of what it's like being, I mean, I, I, this bus was, was, was at 3.45 a.m. It flipped. Being on a bus at that hour of the day, you know, dealing with the bus driver and how you keep him awake and, and being just one of those people on one of those buses, how much this crosses your mind and kind of what goes through your mind just when you see a headline like that about the Mudcats. It certainly does. I mean, it's when you climb onto a, a bus, especially after, you know, I was uh, the, the radio guy for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans for three seasons, and in Myrtle Beach we only play Sunday night games. Uh, there's there's really no ga- no day games for the Pelicans because you got the beach there and there's so much to compete with during the day. So when everybody else is playing a 1 o'clock finale on a Sunday, you're still playing a 6 p.m. game uh, when you're a, a member of that team or of the coaching staff or if you're the broadcast or whatever. So you get done with the game, let's say 9 o'clock, by 10.30 – you're probably wrapped up, uh, you know, from my perspective, I've got the radio box packed. I've got uh, my bag. I've got all my equipment. I shuttle it out to the bus. Guys are finishing up, packing their bags in the clubhouse, getting something to eat, whatever. So when you climb on the bus, it's probably close to 11 or 1130 at night. And many of those nights start off uh, six, seven, eight, 
nine-hour drive, depending on where you're going. Uh, I know when I was there, and I know this has changed since, we never drove directly to Wilmington. That was the longest road trip from Myrtle Beach to Wilmington, Delaware, in the Carolina League. We always drove home from Wilmington, which was nicer because they usually played daytime finales. But there are still some very sizable road trips that you're climbing onto a bus at 11 o'clock at night for. And How long is that drive to Wilmington? To Wilmington, I think, is about eight hours, uh, depending on traffic, because you drive through Baltimore, you drive through the D.C. area, so you can get stuck. You know, We got stuck at very, very random places not even in those spots uh but you know you kind of depending on how it goes driving up the east coast it can be a pretty lengthy trip uh and that's those are the the minor annoyances about it is just sitting on a bus you know you're tired you stop at rest stops at 4 a.m whatever it is but when you get on that bus you basically take your life somebody else is taking your life in their hands that driver is responsible for basically 30 people's lives the 25 guys who are on the roster usually three or four coaches a trainer maybe a strength and conditioning coach depending on how many broadcasters you have go with you that's something that you don't really encounter in many other lines of work. It's not like you get done with your job at H&R Block and you hop on a bus and you go travel to another office for the next week of work. So it's a very different thing to have to deal with. But you do kind of think about it because, I mean, there are many times when you're driving on, you know, dark roads and it's the middle of the night and you're in rural North Carolina or Virginia or wherever you are, and you kind of don't really have any idea what's outside the bus, and you're really only reliant on one guy to make sure that he does. So it is something that kind of crosses your mind, and it's it's really scary when you see this happen because you think, man, that could have very easily been the bus that I was on at one time. The, the bus drivers for these teams, are they usually, the, you get like one guy who sticks with the team the whole year? Is it somebody, you get a different person from, from a company or something? Who's Who are the bus drivers here and how well do you like get to, to know them and how does that maybe just affect your psyche being on that bus? Yeah, good question. With the teams that I worked for, it was usually the same driver the entire season long. When I was in Myrtle Beach, we had one guy who had to leave midseason with a family health issue and we got another guy, but he was our guy the rest of the season. So you get to know the drivers very well and in that, you kind of form that trust because you assume like, alright, Bobby's going to get the job done today because you know he's never failed us before uh, and so there is that there's that kind of component of when you get on all right bobby's got the wheel we're all fine and that's the the routine of the road trip and you get to know those guys and you get to be a little bit comfortable with them i know some teams do go through companies that rotate drivers through they don't get the same guy each time but uh you know it's it's the same sort of thing it's like long distance trucking or or an industry like that it's not easy no matter how my first job out of college was working mornings in radio i had to be up at 4 30 and be in for work and i remember somebody telling me you never get used to it people will tell you oh your body just acclimatizes you never get used to waking up at 4 or 4 30 and you don't and that I found that to be very true. And I think it's sort of the same way in situations like this. There are some people who handle that really well, but there are also some people, and we don't really know what happened in this Carolina circumstance with the Mudcats bus flipping, but it's a difficult job. That's a very difficult thing to do. At 3.45 in the morning, you don't know how long this guy's been awake. You don't know how rigorous the drive has been so far, if it was raining, whatever it is. But that's a very difficult job. And uh, it's it's frightening in that it seems when you see something like this happen – you almost think, man, it's almost a miracle. It doesn't happen more often that we hear about incidents like this, which we're very thankful for. Yeah, I'm curious. You kind of alluded to this before, but I want to ask you to be more specific. When when you finish up a game and you're starting a road trip the next day, what for both the broadcaster and from what you've seen for the players, like what is the routine like for going from either being in uniform or being in the booth 
um, finishing up a game and then getting on a bus and, and driving for six hours or eight hours or whatever and then getting to a hotel. What's that whole, I guess, that experience like and what's the sort of the timeline of how you guys, like, get moving and get all the stuff packed up? And, and how, do you have, like, a teams of, of, of equipment managers that help you load the stuff on the bus? Is that something players are all doing themselves? That is mostly handled by the clubhouse staff. Uh, depending on where you are, you know, some staffs are bigger and a little bit more efficient than others. Uh, usually the way that it goes is you'll have a home clubby and a visiting clubby, and they usually have a couple of bat boys who will help out on each side. But what happens at the end of a series is – they will get everything. If you're the visiting team, you get packed everything at the hotel. All of your luggage is on the bus, and that's ready to go. It's really only baseball equipment that goes to the ballpark and needs to be packed at the end of a game if you're on the road. If you're the home team, you get a little bit of a slower finish to everything once you're wrapped up with the game and all that kind of stuff. So from my perspective, let's say it's you know 6 o'clock on a Sunday night in Myrtle Beach, and we're wrapping up a series with Winston-Salem or whoever it is. When the game gets done... It's easier at home in a lot of circumstances for the radio guy because you generally have an assistant who will be there. He can finish up writing the web story and posting and doing all that kind of stuff and wrapping things up around the park. But you've got to get game notes, uh, or rather post-game notes, finished and printed out so that's stats and box scores and all the stuff that the coaching staff gets post-game. Run that out to the clubhouses. When you're done with that, you got to go back up to the booth, finish off anything if there needs to be a game story posted. If there's a scoring issue, a lot of times coaches will – uh, contact the radio guy, have him talk to the official scorer, try to get a scoring thing changed. So you have to tie up all those loose ends. And then basically you have to pack all of your equipment, which can be a lot of stuff. You've got a unit to dial into a radio station, your microphones, your recorders, uh, your power cords, your power strip, all that stuff. You get that packed up, get all of your own personal belongings packed up. You can't go home to grab your suitcase or do anything like that. So that's probably with you in the booth. And then you shuttle it all out to the bus. And usually the players, for the most part, are pretty well ready to go by the time the game is over. It's kind of shower and grab a sandwich, grab your bag and all that, and you're set to go. Uh, but it's definitely, especially if you're a radio guy, because you don't really have the luxury of packing a whole lot of stuff before the game. It's kind of a frantic finish to to get ready to get on the bus. Uh, I thankfully have never been left by a bus. I've heard of people that that has happened to. I was never left by a bus during my radio career, which was a nice feather in my cap. Uh, but it can be kind of stressful to get everything ready uh, to leave. Usually it's probably an hour and a half to two hours after the finish of a game when everybody wants to be on the bus and off to the next city. So it's that's pretty quick when you think about finishing off a post-game show, writing a game recap, doing all that kind of stuff, and then hopping onto a bus and driving you know, six, eight hours, whatever it is. It's a lot nicer for a lot of guys now because so many of these buses have satellite TV or Wi-Fi. Uh, we did not have that luxury when I was in Myrtle Beach, so it was you had to do all of your work before you got on the bus, couldn't finish up posting anything on the bus or anything anything like that. So it can definitely be pretty hectic. All right. Uh, and then getting to a hotel at like four in the morning or five in the morning yeah. with, with what, 25 players plus four or five coaches plus team. Per- like what's, what's the process of getting that many people checked into a hotel? Like, yeah, that's a good question too. Uh, that's usually handled by either the team's trainer or maybe a strength coach or somebody like that. That's usually the person who handles the travel arrangements. And basically the way it always worked for us is you file off the bus Everybody wanders into the hotel lobby, and the the hotel management, for the most part, usually has an idea of when you'll be arriving. 
So you'll walk in and they generally will have all, you know, 15 rooms or whatever it is. The keys all out and the names all sorted for who is going where. Players room with each other on the road. Uh, it's always a glorious thing for players if they either get their own tr- their own room on a road trip or if they get their own row of seats on the bus on a road trip. Uh, the radio guy... At least in my experience, I never had a room with anybody. Coaching staff doesn't room with anybody. They all get their own rooms. But, yeah, you pretty much walk in, I mean, three-quarters to sleep, groggy at 4.30 in the morning and you know, Frederick, Maryland, to the day's in or whatever it is, and trainer hands you a card, and you go collapse for a few hours, and then you wake up and do the whole thing again. So everybody talks about, you know, they're professional athletes, and it's so glamorous and yada, yada. And the minor leagues, I mean, people talk about the whole grind of baseball, and the minor leagues, that's what it is, especially in the bus leagues, especially if you're in a league like the Carolina League or the Southern League or the Texas League where there's a lot of long trips, there's a lot of really long nights and and stuff like this happens and it's scary. I mean, the worst memory that I think anybody would probably conjure up in a circumstance like this was back in 2007 the Bluffton University baseball team uh, was involved in an accident uh, off of a highway in Atlanta that killed seven people Uh, and we've seen some really scary stuff happen with minor league teams too Uh, back in 2011 the Williamsport crosscutters were on a bus that basically was saved from falling off of a ramp onto an expressway below by just a guardrail that could have been terrible so it's scary uh, and, and it happened happens you know not just in baseball it happens in other sports and we've seen it happen there was a russian hockey team a few years ago where the plane crashed and the entire team was killed i mean these there are teams flying around all the time there are teams driving around all the time and i think a lot of people owe a lot of debt of gratitude to the the people that keep them safe by doing good work flying or driving the bus or all that kind of stuff because it is a lot of exhaustion that goes into these road trips that goes into making it happen day after day and series after series and week after week because there is there's a ton of travel it doesn't happen at at nice hours of the day and uh it can it can be really really exhausting really draining all right well tyler thank you for answering some questions very revealing that was it was weird to just basically have an interview with you but i think that (laughs) was bizarro Uh, world when we come back, we'll, we'll hand the keys back to Tyler with driving this thing, and, and we're going to have uh, Ben Hill on to talk uh, Ben with Ben's Biz Banter. Is that the name you have? Absolutely, my unilateral we're gonna, name. Yes, we're going to. We're gonna, we're, we'll be back with Ben's Biz Banter after this brief musical interlude. <laughs> We are back with Benjamin Hill of Ben's Biz Blog for the Ben's Biz Banter segment. Uh, ben, All that alliteration is fantastic. How, how's it going, Ben? It's going well. I love the alliteration, but I would like to have a theme song in the future. Uh, if you guys could just maybe sing a little jingle or snippet I, about it. I think, me, I think you're going to have to sing us your own theme song. You got something in mind. Now is, uh, now is the time. You have a microphone in front of you. Uh, my name is Ben's Biz, and I am a whiz at bringing you all the news. So stop what you're doing, because I'm about to ruin, and now I'm singing Humpty Dance. That's about all I got. We're going to lead into every week's segment with that now, I hope you know. Yeah, I think you you stole that straight from Snoop. (laughs) Yeah, well, I said stop what you're doing, because I'm about to ruin, because you mentioned the style that you used to. I just started quoting Humpty Dance. That's what happens when I try to improvise. I just quote from the Humpty Dance. It happens my whole life. (laughs) This is a recurring theme. All right, oh, speak, speaking much. of things that might uh, lead you to quote the Humpty Dance, uh, drinking beer is a thing that people like to do at <laughs> baseball games. Uh, yeah, you like that segue? That's, Nicely. That's, that was professional. Yeah, uh, drinking beer at baseball games is fun. Uh, running is, is fun for some people. 
uh, doing all three of those things at once is something apparently you can do. Why don't you tell us about where you can do that and why you might? Well, I'm not sure why you might, but you can. <laughs> um, this is the lead item in my weekly promo preview column, which comes out every Tuesday. Uh, the Bowie Bay Sox, beginning in 2012, they've held these uh, twice a year, at least after they proved popular. It's the 1K beer run. And uh, how it works is you buy a ticket. It's all-inclusive. It's $18. It gets you into the game, but it also makes you a participant in this run before the game in which you do three laps around the warning track, and after each lap around the... Not just the warning track, the entire field. And after each lap around the field, you have to chug a beer before you you know proceed on your next lap. And uh, it's just a recurring thing they've done, and... It seems like it's gotten pretty popular. It's limited to 100 participants per race, but it seems like they're able to uh, get about that many people. They hold it twice a year, and people show up, and uh, they chug a bunch of beers real fast and run around the field, and it's a a good time had by all, or at least some. Do you think they would get more participants if they just sold an $18 ticket that included three beers? Is is that an option, to have your beers on the field and not run? (laughs) That's a good question. You're always looking for ways to game the system. <laughs> Can I just drink and not run now? Yeah, I mean, you could do it in a non-competitive way. You could just take the beer and walk and sip and take your time. But you're right. People would probably buy more tickets if it was just $18 and, like, three beer vouchers. Um, it's a pretty good deal. It's Bud Light, so it's not like you're you're getting some sort of primo IPA or something. But Yeah. But what, what, what we're... If, you, if you're in minor league baseball, it's about making memories. And uh, it's not really that great a memory if you just drink beer at the ballpark. I mean, people love to do that. <laughs> this is a memory. This is competing and chugging beer I would all, on I would a professional always, field. I would always remember chugging a beer and then puking it right back up on a professional <laughs> morning track. That yeah, sounds wonderful. There is. I was thinking about that, and I'm not sure if it's happened before, but there would definitely be the threat of vomiting on a professional baseball field. And, and that's a memory, too. You would not forget doing that. And you wrote, some people take this pretty seriously. You got somebody sent you their own beer race recap last year where they talked about how they, I guess they brought tools so they could shotgun the beers and drink faster. That's legal? Uh, yeah, I guess it is. Or if not, he found his own way to, to game <laughs> the system. But yeah, I had a reader last year send me a full recap with photos about how he won the the beer race in Bowie. And um, yeah, he offered some... Uh, some uh, advice. So if you're trying to win a beer race in Bowie, which him and his friends were, he says you do not really enjoy the beer. You're <laughs> race champion by, by the name of Mike Bryan. We were all out of shape from our glory days of high school, so sprinting around an entire baseball field and then chugging the beer is no easy task. Since I'm not the best beer chugger in the world, I decided to simply shotgun the beers after each lap. Although for about four or five seconds I felt terrible, I was able to quickly get back to the running part of the race, <laughs> and he won. Ben, tell us about, uh, there's, you know, from week to week, there's seemingly a bunch of different Star Wars nights, but the thing I like about Star Wars nights in the 2015 season, teams are getting very creative, especially with their Star Wars uniforms. And being a gigantic uniform nerd, the Durham Bulls are rolling out some Star Wars uniforms for their Star Wars night on May 16th, which are phenomenal. They are not just like, oh, Star Wars jerseys. They're going an entire C-3PO uniform, all the way down to the socks. Tell us about this promo in Durham. Yeah, I believe this is the first time a theme, uh, a team has gone beyond just a theme jersey and done a whole theme uniform. Um, 
So if you can imagine what a C-3PO uniform would look like, and it's probably not that hard to visualize because this is a monochromatic dude, C-3PO. It's, it's, they just went with those colors all the way down the pants, the gold team logo hats, and uh, the knee-high socks that have a black base, but then the kind of uh, metallic C-3PO style shin guards and, uh, on the front and back. So yeah. it makes the players look like uh, head-to-toe C3, C-3PO's. And, you know, teams, it's all about one-upmanship. You know, they want to get fans of the ballpark, but this is also an, an industry of, of bragging and one-upsmanship. So now Durham can say, look, we're the team that didn't just do a theme jersey like all you schmucks. We did the full uniform, so top that. And I don't know how you can top that. Um, can't really make the players wear masks like stormtroopers on the field. You That's like the only thing that they could do to make this more authentically C-3PO. They could, the batting helmets could maybe be... Uh, ah, that's a good point. That's true. I guess there's always uh, there, there's always something. And every time you think there's nothing, something comes to remind you that there's always something. They're pretty impressive. They're, these ones are pretty impressive. Every, a lot of teams have come up. We had uh, a Han Solo frozen in carbonite jersey at Team War, I think, last week. I know the Altoona Curve went with uh, Jabba the Hutt jerseys. Teams have started to get very creative with the with the Star Wars Knights. Yeah, and that ties into the larger creativity with theme jerseys in general. And a big part of that is um, you know, the, the sublimation process, where pretty much anything that can be designed can be sublimated, you know, printed directly onto the jersey fabric. So whereas in the past there just were only a limited amount of designs to choose from because they had to be pre-designed and pre-approved, now you can basically you can imagine it, you can do it, and that's what's leading to these crazy Star Wars jerseys and and just crazy things throughout the industry is that the sky's the limit. You know, as long as you can get the the licensing down and you know make sure you're not offending you know the parent club with what you're doing, the sky's the limit. And there's a lot of ridiculous things, and I don't really see that changing anytime soon. The future is here. The future is here. Uh, ben, one segment you wanted to get going and we can introduce now is, is we talked a little bit about the Crooked Numbers column last week. You want to do a Crooked Number of the Week, and it looks like you came with something prepared. What is what is our in- inaugural Crooked Number of the Week? Well, Crooked Numbers is the a monthly roundup of strange on-field occurrences in minor league baseball, and it's something I've been writing as a labor of love for a number of years now. So I thought it would, could be good on the podcast to uh, maybe end it with a minute or two focusing on maybe what was perhaps the weirdest thing to have occurred on a minor league baseball field this week. And what I chose this week was this is a game in Sacramento between the Sacramento River Cats and they're hosting the Albuquerque Isotopes. The game goes into the extra, into extra innings. It's a tie game. It's tied at three. It stays scoreless all the way into the 14th inning. And this, is, this here is from the game recap. The River Cats ran into some trouble in the bottom of the 14th. A hard-hit ball down the line off the bat of Cedeno was ruled foul. The call was met with disagreement from the Sacramento dugout, and Carlos Triunfo was ejected by third-base umpire Jeff Morrow, leaving the Rivercats a position player short. Manager Bob Mariano got creative, sending left-handed pitcher Ty Block in to play left field as Juan Perez took over at third base. Block and right fielder Parker took turns switching between left and right field depending on the handedness of the hitter. The strategy worked as Block did not see any action in the outfield. Perez filled in admirably a third, even starting a clean 5-4-3 double play in the fifth. So to recap, you had a pitcher playing in the outfield in extra innings, but because his manager didn't want the ball hit to him, he switched in between left and right, depending on whether there was a lefty or a righty at the plate. So this pitcher, in the box score of this game, came into the outfield, and next to his name is 
L F R F L F R F R F. And Parker's is the inverse of that as he switched back and forth. And just one of those random things. A pitcher gets in the game in the 14th inning, uh, plays the outfield, and switches six times in the course of two innings, and successfully does not have a ball hit to him. You know what I think is funny about that, too, is, like, Ty Block's probably a better athlete than 95% of the human beings on the planet, but he gets into a game and they're like, oh, we got to keep him away from the ball. Make sure we put him somewhere where the handedness is not going to hit it to him. <laughs> yeah, pretty entertaining. about the handedness. Can we get off this <laughs> handedness fixation? But, yeah, you're right. If the ball been hit to him, Probably he could have handled it. I'm sure it. he would have handled it fine. Yeah. He's a professional okay. athlete. How many hours of his life has he spent, you know, in the outfield during BP or whatever, you know, <laughs> catching balls? But you don't want to risk it, and uh, that's some very creative managing. So it's, which which handedness did he want him? So with the left-handed hitter up, was he putting him in left field or right field? I'm trying to think. Cause I think he's actually a, a left-handed hitter would be more likely to hit a fly ball to the left field than the other way around. He might hit it harder if he hits it to the right field, but generally hitters hit it in the air more yeah. so which way was he do you know which way he was doing that huh. i hadn't we'll have to do some research on that we might have to get back to you on that one i just assumed that to the pool side to the pool side because that's where you think but you're right maybe in the outfield it wouldn't be that this could go very very deep or maybe he did it depending on where he thought that particular <laughs> hitter might put it and then put block where he ain't uh, it goes too deep i think to get right now but that's the beauty of minor league ba- baseball of course minor league baseball you just see things every day that you've never seen before, such as a pitcher in the outfield running back and forth between left field and right field endlessly. That is that is the Tim Kirchin theorem. Every time you go to a baseball game, you'll see something you've never seen before. Certainly applies to uh, to the minor leagues. Like Without full-on C-3PO uniforms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Love it. He is, <laughs> he is Benjamin Hill. What are you looking for? <laughs> Give Ben a follow on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. Read the blog, uh, the Ben's Biz blog and the Ben's Biz banter, now unified as a, a multimedia monolith. And uh, Ben, as always, thanks for the time. Thank you. Wrapping up the seventh edition of MILB.com's The Show Before the Show podcast. I'm Lamont and Jake Siner. You can follow us on Twitter. He is at Jake underscore Siner. I'm at Tyler Mon. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can listen to us on MILB.com as well. And you can email the show with your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns. Podcast at MILB.com. Jake, what do we got coming up uh, on the site this week? I know there's... Uh, Obviously, with a lot of guys jumping up to AA and AAA, got a lot of fun uh, MILB TV things coming up. Carlos Correa will be a fixture now. Yeah, that, that's uh, he was in the Texas League, which has a lot of MILB TV feeds. He's now in the PCL, which I believe every team in that league has a uh, PCL feed. Uh, Fresno starting a, a series as we talked about with uh, with Albuquerque, um, so he'll be on a, a pretty good TV feed there with Albuquerque for most of the week. So definitely, if you're Looking for something to do in the evenings on the, the next few days. Tuning in to, to catch Correa, uh, take on the, the isotopes would be a thing to do. And also I'm working on uh, the Stockwatch this week feature is going to be a couple of Twins prospects, uh, uh, Felix Jorge and Steven Gonsalves. So if you're a Twins fan, you can look out for that. By the way, the Stockwatch pieces and the tool shed pieces and the, the week-to-week content that Jake and Sam and the rest of the team is churning out at MILB.com has been outstanding. Uh, so go check that out on the site. Also, we're really excited about this. Carlos Correa, we just talked about, the number three overall prospect in baseball, according to MLB.com. Number two, Chicago Cubs third baseman Chris Bryant. Number one, 
Minnesota Twins outfield prospect Byron Buxton. He will join the show next week. We're going to talk with the top overall prospect in all of baseball from uh, his perch with the Chattanooga Lookouts in the AA Southern League. Really excited to talk to Byron Buxton. Yeah, always uh, always a fun guy to talk to, and I'm sure he'll be in a, a good mood. He's been hitting well lately. So that, that obviously makes it uh, makes it a lot more fun to interview when you're hitting well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to do it for episode number seven of the show before the show. Again, you can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Shoot us an email with your thoughts. Podcast at MILB.com. We'll do our best to answer your prospect questions and all kinds of fun. And uh, until next week when Byron Buxton joins the show, we'll talk to you then. Have a good week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.